as a society, I think we didn't really think about what it means that a private company has literally driven down every street in America and taken pictures of every single house and every single building and every single tree. And that's kind of weird if you think about that, right? You're listening to Hacker Culture, a podcast about the people and movements driving cybersecurity culture forward. I'm your host, Sean Sun, and on this episode, how a tech policy journalist digs deep into surveillance law to find a balance between individual privacy and national security. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably doing it through your smartphone. And if you're anything like me, you store a lot of your life online. But do you ever wonder who has access to all that information? Over the past decade, surveillance technology has grown exponentially, and the complexity of privacy law is a melting pot of old and new court rulings. Sarus Farivar has been the senior tech policy editor at Ars Technica for almost seven years. In the latter half of his tenure, he published his book, Habeas Data, which introduces key historical cases of privacy laws, both old and new. On this very first episode of Hacker Culture, we talk about the cases in his book, his privacy experience in other nations, and how cheese danishes got caught up in the center of an investigation. Hey, Sarus, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. And so to kick things off, can you tell me a little bit about what you've been up to for the past year and how your work life is about to change? Sure. Um, Yeah. So for the past nearly seven years, uh, I have been a reporter with uh, a little website called Ars Technica. Um, We are a uh, nearly 20 year old or actually 20 year old tech news website uh, that is part of the Condé Nast family. So ours is a sister publication of The New Yorker and Wired and many other uh, publications. Uh, Unlike all those other publications, ours has only been a website. It's never been a print magazine or anything else. Um, And so 20 years is actually, you know, pretty old in in internet time. Um, I, as we speak, uh, literally the day before uh, February 6th, um, was my last day at ours after nearly seven years um, at that company. Uh, in about 10 days time on February 19th, uh, I will be starting my first day uh, with a new job where I will be a reporter for the new tech investigations team uh, with NBC News, and I'll be based in San Francisco. That's awesome. Yeah. How did that happen? How did that transition happen? NBC News was looking to staff up and to uh, kind of really dive into some of the um, kind of, I don't know, more interesting stories, more long form stories uh, in that are happening both in the place called Silicon Valley and the idea called Silicon Valley. Um, and, you know, and, and I knew a little bit the woman who's the new editor of this team, Olivia Solon, who is formerly of the, the UK Guardian uh, and was based uh, in actually in Oakland, uh, where I live. Um, and, uh, you know, and she was, you know, looking around and, and was interested by some of the work that I had done. And, uh, we started chatting and, and, uh, yeah, it sort of, sort of went from there. And, you know, one of the main things that's going to be different about my job personally is, um, it gives me the opportunity to do, um, some of my favorite kinds of journalism, which is kind of investigative journalism, digging in records, uh, doing kind of long form, more impactful things. Uh, whereas at ours, um, you know, during my time, I was publishing on the site at least once a day, nearly every day for, like I said, nearly seven years. I was looking at the stats, you know, on my last day, and it was something like over 2,800 stories that I had done, which is quite a lot. Um, and some of them are, you know, real short. Some of them are only like 400 words, and some of them are, you know, 3,000 words. Um, so, um, so this will give me a chance to kind of slow down and really sink my teeth into um, some of the more important stories um, that are facing the industry. Actually, to be exact, I did look at your Twitter. I think the number is 2,867. <laughs> there you go. Which is amazing. Um, I don't know if it's amazing or insane. It might be both. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah. Well, um, how do you how do you do it? How do you write 2,867 stories? I mean, like, stories? I, like I said, you know, a lot of them, uh, like if you probably really dug deep into those I would bet that the average uh, word count is probably something like five or six hundred words, which is not that much. Um, and, you know, a lot of what we do at ours is where, you know, there's an old expression in journalism, which is, which says, uh, you know, feed the beast, which means, you know, you've got to put a website out, you've got to put a newspaper out, you've got to put a radio show out, a podcast out, whatever it is. Uh, and you've got to have something. So 
Um, you know, some of those things um, are more uh, fun and interesting, and some of them are just, you know, I couldn't even name probably, you know, half of those <laughs> off the top of my head. So, like, regardless if it's 500 words or it's 5,000 words, um, I guess my question is, how do you like? How do you combat burnout, um, or do you burn out? I mean, I think everybody burns out to some degree or another. I mean, it's um, you know, I one of the things that I like to do for fun is to ride my bike. I ride my bike a lot. Um, you know, just I work at home, so I don't really commute to anywhere. That's going to change soon. But um, uh, for the new job, I'll be in San Francisco half the week. But um, you know, just riding my bike uh, to do errands and. Um, listening to podcasts while I do that and going on long distance bike rides. I'm, I'm training up to do the third time a bike ride from Oakland where I live to Sacramento, which is over 100 miles away uh, to raise money for for Oakland public schools. Uh, and it's really fun and it's a great community and it's um, and I really enjoy that. So so we've been doing some training rides. The, the training season is, is ramping up. Um, the ride will happen at the end of April. Uh so yeah, so so you know, I try to as much as I can focus on other things that I like that aren't you know privacy related. Uh, I like cooking a lot. Um, you know, I like watching Star Trek. Still, I'm watching Star Trek Discovery. It's pretty cool. Um, and uh, yeah, but but you're right. It's you know, there's it it can feel like there's a never ending drumbeat of stories. Um, particular, you know, in this have it take over my life too much also it's kind of my job so <laughs> so i don't know i don't know if i'm successful at at balancing it or not but i i try to be so from your very first story about um i think it, i believe it was about laptops for third world countries yeah that's right to your most recent ones about data privacy how have you as a journalist changed and how has ours technica as a digital magazine changed yeah that's a good question um so for myself i mean when i it's interesting because you know when i was first hired my job title was senior business editor which i always found to be sort of odd because Number one, there was no junior business editor. I didn't manage anybody, so I didn't really know what the senior meant. <laughs> and second, um, I I didn't really cover business. You know, I think most people, when they think of like tech business coverage, they think of like, you know, the kind of financial uh, rigmarole of Silicon Valley, right? Who's up, who's down? What startup is acquiring what other startup? What VC firm is investing in, in what? Who's doing Series A, Series B, whatever? Um, you know, what executive is going from company A to company B? You know, those kinds of things. That's kind of the bread and butter of, of like business journalism. And, you know, my colleagues and I quickly determined that that just doesn't resonate with the Ars Technica audience. Um, the Ars Technica audience doesn't really care, you know, who's up, who's down, uh, who got fired, you know, all of those kinds of things. So we, so I stopped doing them. Uh, I stopped doing those kinds of stories. And, you know, over time, I came to develop a real interest in um, covering the intersection of surveillance, privacy, the law, and technology. Uh, and that sort of began, you know, at my job before ours, when I was living and working in Germany for a couple of years, um, where I wrote about privacy quite a bit. Um, and I started to get more and more interested in um, how those things uh, all work together or sometimes don't work together and, you know, what the law enables as far as technology is concerned. And so that is really where a lot of my interests began to lie. And I started developing a lot of contacts uh, in that, you know, little corner of the law and, and started to learn the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a legal reporter. You know, when I first started out, um, I didn't know the difference between uh, a federal district judge and a magistrate judge. I didn't know, uh, you know, I barely knew the difference between a district court and an appellate court. Um, you know, even though my dad is a lawyer and now that I've been writing about the law for a number of years, keeps bugging me as to when I'm going to go to law school. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but um, <laughs> but um, and, and, you know, it's like anything, right? You 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 read through enough court documents and you start to kind of develop an understanding as to. Um, what the arguments are, and you get a feel for some of the, you know, within the kind of surveillance case. And this is kind of sort of the beginnings of how my book came about, which is that you see a lot of these cases get referenced again and again and again. Um, and it's sort of a, you know, like on the, you know, I, I 
you, probably like me, probably like many people listening to this, right? We often find ourselves in sort of endless Wikipedia rabbit holes, <laughs> you know, or or Reddit or Reddit thread rabbit holes or something, right? Like the law is the same, right? So like one case uh, references another, which references another, which references another. And so then you find yourself four cases deep uh, reading about something that happened, you know, 60 years ago or whatever. And then uh, you know, if you're me, you kind of come to the realization like, oh, maybe maybe this thing that was decided such a long time ago doesn't necessarily apply to this circuit to the you know present circumstance. Um, so toward the last you know couple of years of, of my tenure at ours, I would say probably something like 70 or 80 percent uh, of my coverage was kind of legal policy oriented. And to your second question, which is how has ours itself changed over my tenure there? Well, it's changed a number of ways. We didn't we didn't have, for example, for instance, we didn't have anybody who covered space as their full time job. And now we do. Um, I, ha I have a colleague, uh, Eric Berger, who's in Houston, um, who, you know, knows uh, kind of space and NASA, you know, kind of better than anybody I know. Um, we didn't have anybody who covered cars. Um, we have a, a my colleague, Jonathan Gitlin in Washington, D.C., you know, covers cars, is test driving cars all the time, stuff like that. Um, we didn't do hardly any video, you know, seven years ago. And now we do more. We don't do a lot. We don't do as much as maybe other websites do, but we do We do significantly more than we did when I first started. Um, you know, when I first started, uh, we were using the, the website ours was actually hosted on a movable type blog uh, and we were using IRC for a long time. And, um, you know, and our, our kinds of coverage was was, I would say, similar, but maybe a bit narrower than what it is now. Yeah. And I've been probably following ours for maybe the past four or five years, and it's definitely changed a lot. You guys cover so many new things. Um, so let's talk about a story that you've done that honestly is really fascinating to me. Um, it's about suites. It's about data privacy. And I think you've also said that it's one of your favorite stories that have done research on. It's your cheese Danish story. <laughs> the cheese Danish story. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, can you tell the listeners just like a brief overview of what happens? Sure. So um, the cheese Danish story was this really interesting story. They basically there were these two guys from um, they were of you know Bosnian or Serbian heritage, and they I believe lived in Canada in in Ontario. And what they were doing was they were driving a truck that was full of as you said frozen cheese Danishes from Ontario, Canada to, of all places, Ontario, California, which is just east of Los Angeles. I don't really know why. And they were going to like to be delivered to a Starbucks. And I don't really know why Starbucks in Ontario, California needs Danishes to come from, you know, practically all the way across the continent, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, so they're, so they're driving along and um, this very truck uh, that they were driving had previously been involved in a drug trafficking operation. Um, and so the American federal authorities were very interested in the fact that this truck now was going to be crossing back because with, you know, commercial trucks, there's like a whole plan and there's a whole procedure of like, okay, like we're going from A to B and here's what we're driving and, you know, so on. And so as they're moving, uh, this, this truck, um, you know, they, the, um, federal authorities were, were interested in the fact that it was now coming back across the border, again, after having previously been involved in a, in a drug trafficking operation. And so um, so they crossed at Port Huron, Michigan into the United States. And what was curious about it was that uh, an FBI agent based in Los Angeles, who was sort of leading this investigation, um, said to her colleagues in Homeland Security in Michigan, said, hey, uh, you know what we should do is we should put a tracking device on this truck, in fact, two, we should put one on the cab and one on the, uh, you know, the, the trailer. Um, uh, after it crosses into the United States, and I'm pretty sure that we don't need a warrant to do that. And we'll just, you know, uh, sit back and we'll watch this truck as it drives from Michigan over to California, over to Southern California. And then when it gets here, we will, you know, confront these guys. And so that's what they did. And it took, you know, to drive from Port Huron, Michigan to Los Angeles takes something like 30, 33 hours, something like that. Um, so they got to LA, um, they confront them, um, the FBI and the, and I think it was the LAPD, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, they confront them and the, these two defendants are not, 
uh, very forthcoming. They claim that you know they they claim that they just have you know frozen cheese danishes that they've just been driving you know from Canada. Um, the police find uh, a couple of new cell phones. These guys claim that they don't know where they are. Um, they have observed them you know doing. Um, they had observed them previously doing like a like a uh, a dry run um, for the delivery, and you know the um, and you know so what they so what they do is uh, they you know after the the men get arrested the Danishes get seized uh, or the you know the the various materials get seized um, eventually the the men challenge the search. Um, of you know the placement of the tracker, and this was the sort of thing that this that their defense attorney was was telling me, and this was kind of what I had initially covered was the fact that they had challenged it in the, and in court, and and they had said, look, this was an illegal seizure of the truck. You can't put a tracking device on a truck on a you know a car or a truck like this without a warrant, and there's pretty recent Supreme Court precedent to support that. Um, and in the end, the federal judge. Uh, ruled in the defendant's favor, so they um, they you know, and the government dropped the charges. Um, but what was really curious about that case was that uh, Homeland Security, in a in one of their court filings, basically said, like, we still think that this is legal. This is our policy, uh, and we're they sort of implied that they're going to keep doing it. And that's something that that kind of raised a lot of eyebrows for me and a lot of the other you know, amongst the kind of privacy legal people that I've talked to, um, they thought that that was really strange that despite the fact that they had a ruling against them from a federal judge, that they nonetheless kind of asserted uh, that they have this authority. And that's kind of one of the things that I've learned in covering the law is that like, even if, you know, even if the law says one thing, or even if a judge says one thing, um, you know, really, you only know whether or not that's true or correct when it gets adjudicated in court, you know, and if the agency will actually follow the ruling. Yeah, and that's really worrisome to hear and to just think about, like, what happens when the DHS does this again and there's a judge that rules in their favor? Right. And it's an interesting thing because here the question, you know, I don't think there would have been any question um, if it was wholly within the interior of the country. But for whatever reason, the FBI and, and DHS believed that due to something called the border exception to the Fourth Amendment, which says that, you know, if anybody has ever come in or out of the United States, you know, right, that there's that the government claims that there's this, uh, you know, right that they have to search people's stuff. And that apparently includes putting tracking devices on them. So basically they're saying, hey, the border exception supersedes, uh, you know, people's Fourth Amendment protections. And what this federal judge in Southern California said was, no, it doesn't, because you weren't just, first of all, you weren't just checking somebody one time for one little thing at the border. You put it on at the border and then you watched as they drove across, basically across the country for 30 hours, um, you know. And so the judge was like, no, you can't you can't do that. So um, my book, Habeas Data, covers 50 years of surveillance law in America from 1967 to 2017. And I look at. 10 cases, mostly Supreme Court, um, that try to show, uh, you know, the the sort of genealogy, if you will, of of the legal system. And the case, the first case that I write about um, is a case called Katz, K-A-T-Z, um, which is... Um, which is a case called Katz versus United States. Um, Charles Katz was a pretty small time uh, gambler in Los Angeles in 1965. Um, he would go to certain pay phones and he would um, bet on college sports. And he did this enough times that he drew the attention of the LAPD and the FBI because, uh, of course, you know, interstate gambling is illegal. And um, so anyway, eventually what they did was they placed a recording device on top of the phone booths uh, that he liked to use on Sunset Boulevard in, in Hollywood. Uh, and these are, you have to remember, this is like mid-1960s technology, right? So this is probably like big, you know, a couple feet across reels, like, you know, old cassette reels, like huge, a huge thing. And they had a team of agents that would watch him as he walked from his apartment a few blocks away to these payphones. They would radio over somebody, somebody, it was somebody's job to like scamper up the phone booth and turn on the recorder uh, and then scamper down and not be seen, which is kind of amazing. Um, and 
you know, and they devoted quite a lot of resources to to going after this guy. Uh, they recorded him for six days. They they caught him red-handed, uh, as it were. Uh, and when they finally arrested him, uh, you know, they walked him down to his apartment. They had a warrant to search the apartment. Uh, they found all of his like betting materials, sports magazines, rolls of quarters, all kinds of stuff. And they did not crucially have a warrant to put the microphone on top of the phone booth because sort of like the cheese Danish case, uh, the FBI believed that it did not need one. And so this was the kind of the basis of the challenge um, by his defense attorneys saying, hey, uh, you know, we think it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment to record somebody in a phone booth without a warrant. And eventually the Supreme Court, a couple years later, 1967, uh, agreed and they found that, yes, uh, this was a violation. And this is the case that gives us this phrase that I think a lot of us have heard, but maybe don't know where it comes from. This phrase, a quote, reasonable expectation of privacy. So the court found that there is such a thing as a reasonable expectation of privacy. And a phone booth is one of those places where you reasonably expect that you're not going to be surveilled. It is similar to uh, your office, a taxi, a hotel room, uh, your own home, uh, where, you know, if the government wants to surveil you, they need to get a warrant to do that. Um, and so there's only 10 court cases in the book, um, and it covers a lot. I was wondering how you kept, how you chose those 10? Yeah, um, there's there's a few that are kind of obvious. I mean, I think cats is a really obvious one because of this phrase. I mean, you read a lot of these cases now, you read some of the more modern cases a lot of them reference cats, right? This for and even just this phrase, like even if you've never, even if you've never heard the name Charles Katz, you you and if you care about privacy at all, you've probably heard this phrase before, even if you don't totally know the story of where it comes from. Um, so that's like an obvious starting point. Um, some of the others, again, were more obvious than others. Um, in the in the wake of of Edward Snowden, for example, in 2013. I think a lot of us got a crash course, I did, uh, in something called the third party doctrine, which is this kind of strange idea that says that, you know, if the, if, you know, you and I are on the phone right now together uh, and we're using, in this case, Google Hangouts to make this call, right? We have introduced a third party, Google in this case, into this call. And so because there is a third party, we have essentially relinquished our privacy interest in the call. And so Google or Verizon or whatever company, um, you know, can turn that that information over to the government uh, without a warrant uh, because we don't have any privacy interest in the fact that we called each other. This is the, the third party doctrine. And, you know, and, and so that was something that kind of came up in the wake of, of Snowden and some of the legal discussions that came out after Snowden, um, that, that again, that phrase and that kind of idea comes from a case that I write about in the book called Smith versus Maryland, um, which again involves uh, a very small thing. I mean, right, so Katz involves a guy, you know, calling, you know, making sports bets on, on a payphone. Smith versus Maryland, uh, again, starts out very small. It's a guy, Michael Smith, who is a um, you know a mugger basically? He mugs a woman in Baltimore on her doorstep at midnight one night, and you know scares the daylights out of her. And not only does he steal her purse from her on you know at her own house, but also he proceeds to make kind of harassing phone calls to her uh, over the next few days. And at one point, he even calls her, tells her to step outside of her house, um, and. He then and she does, and he drives by just as a way to like freak her out. Um, eventually, uh, the police find him and you know are able to get a copy of his phone records, three days of his phone records, showing that yes, he called this woman, and so there was a link, you know, between them. And again, one of the things that his lawyers, the arguments that his lawyers made was, hey, you know, the police needed a warrant to get his phone records. Ultimately, the Supreme Court said no. Um, and this is like one of the main cases that solidified this this third party doctrine. Um, so, you know, there are there are a couple cases like that that I think are pretty clear. Um, some of them are, are a little bit less clear and maybe a little bit less obvious. Um, so one of the things that I tried to do is to show, you know, these particularly these older cases and show how they continue to be relevant today. Um, so, you know, I wrote a lot about the um, the uh, at the time, the so-called FBI versus Apple showdown. Um, and, you know, in that case, again, 
the that case basically well so first of all the legal question behind that case right so does the government have the authority to order a company to do something that it doesn't want to do can it use this weird little law called the all writs act that has its origins in the early days of the american republic uh to to in this case you know can it order apple to break the encryption on an iphone um so that it can get inside the phone of a of a terror suspect terrorism suspect um right that was the that was the question the government said yes the all writs act gives us this authority apple does have to comply with the judge's order that we that we got and apple came back and said no it doesn't actually this is going way too far um we don't want to do it we can do it we have the ability to do it um you know but we don't think that we should have to. Uh, and here's why. And that was kind of what the legal dispute was all about. Um, that legal question remains unresolved. Uh, uh, listeners may remember that, you know, the day before uh, they were supposed to have a hearing on this in Riverside, California, uh, again, east of Los Angeles. Um, and I was actually in Riverside for that you know, I was ready to go. I was all excited to to go to the court hearing. It got canceled the day before. Uh, the government filed at the, you know, basically at the last minute saying, oh, actually, we figured out a way to get into the phone. We're not going to tell you how we did it. We're not going to tell you who we paid. We're not going to tell you what we got from the phone. We still don't know what, what they got, if anything, useful from the phone. Um, we know that they paid probably somewhere north of a million dollars to get into the phone. Um, but the legal question remains unresolved. And so that, that, uh, you know, Apple's argument basically turned on, uh, a case that I had never heard of that I think many, you know, lawyers who look at these kinds of things had never heard of this Supreme court case from the 1970s called New York telephone, um, which dealt with the all writs act. And there was this sort of, you know, legal test that got created, um, as to whether or not, uh, New York telephone, a, a telecom, you know, provider of the time, uh, could be compelled to do something that the government wanted it to do, um, and Apple Apple basically argued that it didn't meet the the elements of that test, uh, and so like you know like with the cheese Danish thing right we don't know the answer we don't know um, we don't know if this could could happen again. Um, one of the things that you know Apple argued to the court was uh, you know they gave the um, what I like call, what I like to call the if you give a mouse a cookie argument. They said, look, you know, if we do this thing for the government now, there's nothing stopping the government from coming to us, you know, next week or next month uh, to do another thing and another thing and to go to, you know, to other companies to have them, you know, turn their devices into, you know, essentially agents of the government. And we don't like that. And we don't we don't like where that where that would lead to. Um, so uh, for now, we haven't had any big public showdowns like this. Um so we will see if this if the government tries to to push this legal theory again. Yeah, and that's like the thing with precedence is that once it's set, it's kind of set and it can be referenced over and over again. Um, I'm curious that when you were writing the book, was there anything that surprised you? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that surprised me is that these questions are very old, right? Um, the the questions of um, you know, technology and the balance of power and how much authority do we give to the government? How much authority do we give to police? What kinds of technology should they be allowed to use? Um, these are questions that have been debated arguably, well, for, for certainly at least half a century, if not, you know, longer than that. Um, so, you know, this is, I think, a very old idea um, that we as a country have been trying to figure out is, you know, I think most people would say, uh, you know, if there's a policeman outside on the street, uh, most people would say, yeah, it's fine for that policeman to use his or her own two eyes to observe, you know, the world around them. And we might say, OK, uh, is it OK for policemen to use binoculars? Probably. Is it OK for police to use, uh, you know, like a notepad or a camera, right? A still camera. That's probably OK. Um, is it OK for police to, you know, take sketches or to, to do drawings? Probably. Is it okay for police to take video? Mm, probably. Is it okay for police to fly a drone? Is it okay for police to have body cameras? Is it okay for police? Right. And so then, then you started getting into kind of as the technology escalates, uh, it kind of raises new questions um, that modern technology, uh, you know, has has led us to. Um, <clears throat> but if you really dig back at at some of those. Uh, earlier questions, these are things that, um, you know, 
our you know the judges before and and our you know the framers dealt with with previously uh you know i think it's the the famous line from james madison uh, that said, you know, if men are no angels, uh, you know, we wouldn't need government, basically. Like, you can't, and this is the whole idea, right? This is kind of our part of our founding DNA in this country, is that we are very skeptical. And so I think that was one thing that was really surprising to me. And then I would say the other thing is that um, when I first started working on the book, my sort of working assumption was that, um, you know, that oh, you know, it was going to be kind of very like fatalistic that like, oh, like these these judges, right? They don't they don't get it. They're so old. In many cases, they're like old white men, uh, you know, in particular in the Supreme Court, it's like mostly men. Um, you know, many of them are, are old and out of touch and wouldn't know, you know, uh, wouldn't know the difference uh, between a stingray and a drone, for instance, right? Um, and that's just kind of, it's just all hopeless and we're all screwed was kind of my working hypothesis. Um, the answer that I came away with, uh, with, not to give away the ending of my own book, um, is that we can't rely, we as a society, we can't rely on the Supreme Court or courts in general to, to save us, right? We can't wait um, for them to come up with the answer. We need to do a lot more ahead of time. Um, and that might mean Congress, that might mean your state legislature, but it might also mean your city or your county. Um, and we need to have more policies ahead of time. And we need to have more attention paid ahead of time uh, to say to your sheriff or to say to your police chief, hey, you want to have drones or you want to have stingrays or you want to have license plate readers or you want to have whatever it is that you want uh, in the name of public safety, that's all good. But let's just be upfront and clear and transparent about what you want, why you want it, how you're going to use it, how you're not going to use it, you know, what the consequences of, of misuse are, who has access to this data, how long is it kept, you know, Critically thinking about those kinds of questions is something that historically uh, police departments and certainly not, you know, city and county legislative bodies have not done uh, in this country. Um, in Oakland, that's something that we have done, I think, arguably more than any other city in America. And that's, again, that's a direct consequence of our friend Edward Snowden from, from 2013. Um, the creation of uh, something called the Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission, a local privacy watchdog on the city itself, on the city council itself, um, directly comes from the fact that the city approved uh, federal funding to build a local surveillance center in the name of port security. The port of Oakland is the fifth largest port in America, third biggest on the West Coast. Um, you know, and and they were going to accept all this basically free federal money. And this happened right after Edward Snowden, summer 2013, uh, and a lot of local activists really freaked out. And, and that led to some serious questions locally about, you know, how should the city, um, you know, be using, you know, how should it responsibly use surveillance technology, uh, you know, in the, in the furtherance of, of public safety. And, you know, Oakland is a city that has a lot of serious crime, you know, on average, something like 80 people a year get murdered, which is tragic. And, uh, you know, nobody nobody wants that to happen, of course. Um, but at the same time, you know, Oakland is a city where particularly communities of color have borne the brunt of really intense uh, surveillance in recent decades. And so there's a lot of questions to try to figure out, you know, what that what that balance is. That's really awesome that Oakland has a commission like that. Or have there been any other events or like organizations in recent history that also give you hope? Yeah, um, it's interesting. So Oakland has, like I said, this this privacy commission, and I don't know of any other city that has that has developed one in the same kind of way. But I do know that um, there have been in in Massachusetts, in Washington State, around uh, the Bay Area, Santa Clara County, uh, the city of Berkeley, the city of Davis, California, near Sacramento, um, have passed local ordinances that don't replicate. That replicates sort of the spirit of what Oakland is doing in terms of providing um, oversight, requiring the police to disclose, you know, what they're buying and coming up with policies and stuff that none, as far as I know, have mandated the creation of, you know, a commission with, you know, human beings that have regular meetings and minutes and stuff like that. Um, but there has been certainly, um, you know, I think a renewed look uh, at how to manage that from the local level. So I understand that you lived in Germany for about two years. Is there any difference in how they view privacy versus how we do in the U.S.? 
so when I first arrived in Germany in the spring of 2010, um, there was something that uh, a lot of politicians uh, and a lot of privacy activists were talking about, which was the arrival of Google Street View. Um, so I don't know if you remember when Google Street View debuted in this country, um, but you know, other than kind of the little short rumblings of a few, you know, privacy activists. Uh, everyone was like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go look up, you know, the picture of my house and a picture of my grandma's house and like whatever. Uh, and that was sort of the end of it. And we, we, as a society, I think we didn't really think about what it means that a private company has literally driven down every street in America and taken pictures of every single house and every single building and every single tree. And that's kind of weird if you think about that, right? Um, whereas in Germany, when it came out, um, a lot of people had a lot of questions, you know? And, and again, put yourself in the shoes of, you know, a German citizen. Or imagine it this way, right? Imagine if like a German company or a Russian company or a Japanese company all of a sudden, you know, had a service where they were driving cars down the streets of America and, and creating a website and putting up pictures of people how, people's houses all over the place. Um, you know, I think maybe we might feel differently if it was a foreign company doing it. So in Germany, being a sort of very privacy-minded country, generally speaking, uh, a lot of people, a lot of politicians were very skeptical of the entire kind of concept of, of Google Street View. And what I sort of came to learn is that in Germany, and I would say in the European Union, generally speaking, um, I would say the kind of majority default emotional position is that people, generally speaking, trust the government more and trust private companies less. And in the US, I would say the the it's kind of the opposite, right? We generally we're generally pretty trusting of companies by and large. Um, and we're generally less trusting of government, right? Our entire concept of like, if you read, right, the Bill of Rights, uh, it talks about things that the government can't do, right? Congress shall make no law, right, et cetera, et cetera. And it, and it sets up limits as to what the government can do, because we're worried that the government is the big capital G scary government uh, is going to do to us. Uh, and that's something that that we're sort of um, that's again, like I said earlier, right? It, it's sort of baked into the DNA of the country, um, and so we we're more concerned that the that the government itself is going to get out of hand, whereas the you know private companies uh, maybe less so. Um, and you know, in Germany, one of the things that I found really strange is that they they require everyone, whether you're a citizen or foreigner or what, um, to register themselves. Um, you know, when you are moving in or out of a city. So one of the, I lived in Bonn, Germany, which is the former capital of West Germany, uh, near Cologne in the Western part of the country. Um, and one of the very first things I had to do when I arrived was I had to present myself at city hall and I, and I, you know, sat down with a, with a clerk and I was like, hi, uh, you know, I'm Sarus. Here's my passport. Here's my visa. Uh, here's my address. Uh, you know, please like register me into your, you know, registry or whatever. Um, and they would do that. And then like, you know, I was there for two years. So after, I don't know, seven, eight months, uh, my wife and I moved apartments across town. We had to go back to the city hall and be like, all right, guess what? We moved, uh, we moved across town. Uh, you know, here's our new address, whatever. And then when we left the country or right before we left the country, we had to be like, okay, we're, we're leaving the country. Bye. And like, we did like deregister ourselves. And this is something that every single person has to do, whether you're moving cities, whether you're moving addresses in the same city, whatever you're doing, you have to formally present yourself to your local government, basically. And Germans like think that this is totally fine and normal. Um, but I, I think about like, I think about like, what would it mean for Americans, if every time you moved apartments, you had to present yourself at a government office, you had to you had to tell the government where you were, where you know what your address is. We have this kind of mythos in this country that like you're free and you can go anywhere and you can do anything and you can reinvent yourself and you can like move to another town and like you know nobody knows who you are and you know um, and you know that's maybe half true, uh, but I I just found that really interesting. You know, that was sort of my first experience of being in Germany was was interacting with this kind of city government uh, and then reading about and hearing the discussions about Google Street View. Um, and that was really what kind of set me on this path of thinking about privacy uh, and talking to German lawyers and trying to understand kind of what was going on. And then also learning that in Germany, there's, you know, there is a government job. There's a government entity called the Data Protection Authority. Uh, known in, in European parlance as a DPA. Um, every single European Union country has one of these. In, in the UK, and the UK is you know, 
probably not going to be in the EU pretty soon, but right. So they have something called the Information Commissioner's Office. Same thing. Ireland has one. France has one. Germany has one. All the European Union countries have one. And in Germany, every single state within Germany has one, right? So the state of Berlin has one. The state of Bavaria has one. The state where I was living, North Rhine-Westphalia has one. Um, every state has its own. So, you know, it would happen every couple months, uh, it felt like, that, you know, the the data protection authority in, you know, Hamburg or Bavaria or whatever state um, would stand up and say, hey, Google, hey, Facebook, hey, whatever company, uh, you know, we think that you violated this provision of German law. You have to pay 50,000 euros or 100,000 euros or whatever to, you know, satisfy this violation. And, you know, and I would write about these things, but every time they would happen, I would sort of think like, man, like, this is such a joke. Like, I'm sure like the, whatever, you know, lawyer at Facebook is getting these these letters, uh, you know, I'm sure that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's lunch budget is bigger than that, right? Like, I'm sure that like these are so small. These are such small potatoes. Um, and so that was sort of got me thinking about. Um, you know, what would what would uh, you know, how does that work and what would kind of a meaningful penalty look like? And I think that's what the new EU law, the GDPR, uh, the general directive on privacy and privacy regulation, I think is what it is. Um, and right. So the GDPR imposes a maximum penalty of four percent of, of global revenue, which for a company like Facebook is a lot. Um, so we have not yet seen any company, you know, be hit with the maximum penalty yet. But we've had. You know, just very recently, within the last couple of weeks, uh, the French uh, data authority um, uh, found that I think it was Google was in violation and had to pay tens of millions of euros, um, which, you know, is not is not nothing, um, but is certainly less than, you know, the potentially billions of euros that they might have to pay later if if they kind of crack down on them. So, um so yeah, it was a really interesting time to be in in Europe and to kind of learn about those things and to learn about the different sorts of ways that people think about privacy and what privacy means. So do you think that readers, um, or rather from my perspective as a non-journalist, I see that media often uses, I guess, like fear and uncertainty as a way to get those clicks. Um, and media around like, you know, the Snowden stuff, the FBI things. I think a lot of the media that I read or I consumed did kind of fuel that type of like fear. What is that perspective like as a journalist? I mean, yeah, uh, you know, there there certainly is a a pressure in the kind of online journalism world, particularly you know, to get you know clicks, viewers, readers, uh, whatever metric you want to use. Um, I I would I would hope that that the people that I work with and that me certainly don't use fear in particular as a way to to drive readers. Um, we're interested in, you know, I think one of the things that, um, you know, is unfortunately, you know, is just a truth is that like, you know, there's a common adage in journalism, which is that, you know, uh, dog bites man is not a news story, but man bites dog is a news story, right? So this is like, like what you want is something that's different and unusual, right? We use the word news because it's new, right? We want something that's like, that's not that we don't expect. Um, and sometimes that means that the new thing is something that is, uh, you know, unusual or maybe in some cases violent, you know, to use the the man bites dog analogy, right? Um, uh, that maybe can make people fearful, but I would like to believe, um, you know, that that's not, that's not the intent. Um, and that, that, that the idea, you know, like, I, to when I tell these stories as it pertains to, you know, digital surveillance and stuff, my intention is not to make people afraid. My intention is to make people aware. Um, you know, when I, I've traveled, I've been fortunate enough to have been invited uh, to give talks about my book around the country. And something that I always say at the, particularly at the end of the talks, I say, look, you know, if nothing else, uh, I would hope that people would start to ask questions of their local communities uh, and find out how many license plate readers your police department has, how many drones your county sheriff has, how many, you know, this or that technology uh, your local, you know, law enforcement entity has. Uh, and you might be surprised as to what the answer is. And you might say, depending on how you feel about police in general, you might say, that's awesome. I want them to have, you know, twice as many. I want them to catch twice as many bad guys. Um, but, you know, if you, if you, you can't, 
have like an opinion one way or the other without knowing what the facts are. And I always say, you know, anybody can file a public records request. Every state has a public records law. In California, it's called the California Public Records Act. In New York, it's called FOIL, Freedom of Information Law. Federally, it's called FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. Every state has its own version. And, uh, you know, government agencies ranging from your city police department to, you know, whatever state regulatory entity, all the way up to the FBI and the NSA, right, are supposed to be responsive to those records requests. And if they're not, uh, you know, if you ask, you know, your city police department, hey, show me the invoices of all the drones that you've bought, uh, they're supposed to give those to you. And if they don't, um, then, you know, you can go to your neighborhood friendly lawyer or your local ACLU chapter or whoever and maybe take them to court and make them give you the records um, if you are really motivated to do that. But I always say, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to be a journalist. There's no superpower uh, that you need to file a records request. Anybody can do it. Um, uh, you might find that that it's frustrating and it takes a long time sometimes, uh, particularly at the federal level. Requests can take years. Um, in my experience, state and local um, uh, entities are much more responsive um, to those records. Um, and they can be very, very illuminating. Um, so I encourage everybody to, to learn how to, how to do that. Um, and it's really not complicated at all. It's literally like drafting an email and saying, Hey, under this state law, whatever your state is, uh, you know, these are the records I want. I want purchase orders. I want emails. I want PowerPoint presentations. I want, um, contracts, I want, whatever it is that you that you think exists. If there's a public record, you have the right to ask for it. So, is there anyone who inspires you to do what you do? Um, and do you have any mentors, especially the people that you went to about your book? Definitely. I mean, I am constantly amazed at the quality of of journalism that's out there. Um, there are many people, many of my fellow journalists that I learn from all the time. Um, I'm thinking of people like Kashmir Hill, uh, my soon-to-be editor, Olivia Solon, um, Sarah Jong, uh, formerly of The Verge, now of the New York Times opinion page. Um, um, I'm thinking of people like, uh, you know, other reporters at the, at the New York Times, Mike Isaac, uh, Brian Fung over the Washington Post, um, people like that who I think, you know, cover the industry uh, in a in a really great way, and I you know even if I didn't do what I what I do, I would still be reading their their work because I think they they do a really great job. Um, in terms of my own mentor, yeah, I, I mean I'd say there's somebody that that stands out quite a bit, which is an old professor of mine from from my graduate school days at at Columbia University, a guy by the name of Sam Sam Friedman. Um, Sam teaches a class at the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism um, about book writing. He, you know, and I was explaining to him about how I was covering the FBI versus Apple uh, legal showdown and all of the kind of legal history that I had been learning. And he, you know, just looked at me and was like, that's the next book you should do. And I was like, huh, maybe I could do that. And so that's that's what I did. And so it came about because of him. And the publisher that I ended up working with was a connection of his. He knew the the head of the company, a guy by the name of Dennis Johnson, who's the head of Melville House. Um, and so, yeah, the book is a direct result of of, of my relationship with, with Sam. Um, and he's a great mentor. He's a great teacher. He's the hardest, toughest, most demanding professor I've ever had in any subject. Um, he, you know, he assigned, um, at least, I think this is still true, but when I was his student back in 2005, um, he would assign us a book to read of, of nonfiction and a journalism book to read uh, every week. And he would only assign books where he could bring the author to class. So we would have these like three or four hour classes once a week. Uh, and, you know, we had, you know, some journalist who was, you know, 10 years older than us who had written the book that we had just read uh, sitting across the table from us. Uh, and that was a little bit intimidating and, you know, don't tell Sam, but you know, sometimes I didn't finish the book or may, you know, uh, and so, uh, you know, like I, I, you know, I was balancing other classes too, but he was really demanding. And then on top of that, we had to turn in, um, essentially a writing exercise of two to 3000 words of, of what's called narrative nonfiction, right? The kind of writing that you would see in a book like mine or other books like it. Um, and again, as a, as a practice, as an exercise, um, and you'd be given some like really open-ended theme, like tradition or something. And you had to kind of figure out what kind of story you wanted to tell. Um, 
as a way to get yourself to write in that way and in that style. And for me, there, I had classmates who I always felt, you know, writing in that way came very naturally to them and it did not come naturally to me. Um, I, I struggled with it and, and it was really hard and it taught me a lot. And, um, and I really value his, his guidance and his, um, editing and, you know, toughness. And, and I think that, uh, you know, he, showed more than probably more than any other professor that I had, you know, that like, okay, you want to write a book. That's like a serious undertaking and like, let's be serious about it and let's, let's do the work. And, um, you know, and if you put the hours in, uh, you can, you can make it happen. Yeah. Nice. Um, that's cool. That's super inspiring to hear. Um, especially, you know, for someone who's written almost 3000 articles, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh i guess uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show yeah it's my pleasure it's my pleasure uh i wish you luck man i look forward to hearing it do you have any i guess uh shameless plugs uh wisdom advice last <laughs> words that you'd like to share with no i would just say i mean you know follow follow what you love and you know follow follow your passion and, and see where it leads you and you know if it leads you into somewhere that's not uh, you know, super lucrative, uh, you know, computer secu security from what I hear can be pretty lucrative. So maybe that'll work out for you. But, uh, you know, there are lots of other avenues to take, whether it's writing about it or teaching people about it or other kinds of things. I think there's other ways to kind of engage with a field, even if you're not doing that thing specifically. But, um, yeah, I, I have a lot of fun doing what I do. It's journal. I always say that journalism is, you know, learning stuff and telling people what you learned. That's basically what it is. <laughs> um, so if you're a curious person and you want to know more about InfoSec or whatever else, uh, baseball, Star Trek, anything, you know, journalism is a good field to, to go into. Hey, thanks for listening. Sarusa's book, Habeas Data, is a critical lens into the past 50 years of surveillance history. He's been jumping down legal privacy rabbit holes, so we don't have to. If you want to learn more about Sarus and see what he's up to, you can follow him on Twitter at CFaravar. And if you're interested in what we're doing, head on over to our website at hackerculture.fm. That's hackerculture.fm. There you can find show notes and other extra things we're working on. This episode was recorded and mixed by me, but it wouldn't exist without Edward and Jeffrey Q. Special thanks to Sarus Faravar for an awesome conversation, and we wish him the best at his new job as a reporter for NBC Tech News Investigations. And of course, thank you, listener, for tuning in. You can let us know what you thought of this episode by tweeting at HackerCultureFM or shooting me an email. I'd love to hear from you and use your feedback to improve this show. And don't forget to tune in next week on wherever you listen to podcasts.